Well, I think it was on Friday evening. Time is a funny thing, isn't it? Friday evening was two days ago, and yet, how many here feel like it was a long time ago, Friday? How many feel like today has been a very long day? Yeah. <laughs> it's really no longer than any other day, is it? No, no day is longer or shorter than, than the others, and yet... The perception of time is such a, such a strange thing. But it was Friday evening when I, I uh, spoke a little bit about mindfulness and, um, and how mindfulness is, is the foundation of, of the insight meditation practice. And, um, and, and mindfulness, and, I, and I, I know it's the same here in England as in Canada and the U.S., where mindfulness has has really become mainstream. And um, we're getting mindfulness courses in just about anything you can imagine. <laughs> mindfulness this and mindfulness that. And, and, and the research is, is showing um, wonderful benefits from, from mindfulness. And people are really undergoing great transformations in their lives because uh, from, from the, the power of mindfulness, the power of, of, of developing mindfulness. And, um, and in, in the retreat situation, this is very much what we're, what we're encouraging in the, in the continuing to come back into the body and continuing to come to rest and that, that sense of, of being at rest and being present with our experience. Really the intention with that is is to cultivate and to strengthen the mindfulness. So mindfulness being that ability to open to and stay present with present experience without judging it, without trying to make it different, without trying to change it. And when we're able to do that, one of the the very magical and mysterious things that we come to see is that things do change. By observing them, by staying present with them, we see that that they change. And so mindfulness has this this tremendous power to to show us this. And and seeing that that change happens can can touch us in a way that it, it allows for a releasing of the struggle to make things different. So mindfulness in itself is very powerful. And mindfulness also, as I, as I spoke a little bit about on Friday, mindfulness also is, is a major factor in cultivating calmness. In that coming back to rest over and over and over again, it really contributes to a calming and a settling of the body and of the mind. And, and hopefully at least some of you have experienced some of that in these these two days here together. So mindfulness is 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 really a a, a critical piece. But I'd, I'd like to speak this evening about some other aspects of the insight meditation practice that are equally important. And these other these other aspects um, show some of you are, are some of you know and. Some of you maybe don't know that the, the Buddha was very fond of making lists. And um, somebody gave me a book <laughs> of the lists of the Buddha. <laughs> and it just goes on and on and on with all these, these lists. Um, but there are, there, are, there are certain lists. There's three or four lists that, that really stand out for me. And one of them, of course, is the list of the Four Noble Truths, which I briefly mentioned the other day. Another one is the list of the Eightfold Path, which I mentioned on Friday. And another one is called, the, the Buddha referred to it as the Seven Factors of Awakening. And it's, it's a list of seven qualities, seven qualities of, of mind and heart that, that the Buddha said actually were necessary to cultivate. And the presence of these factors the presence of these factors is what really allows for awakening. These are, these are conditions 
for awakening. Conditions, as I, I mentioned in the, the Four Noble Truths, the first Noble Truth is that there is dukkha, the second is that there's a cause, and the third is that there's an end to it. And the presence of these four, of these seven factors, support the third Noble Truth. They support the ending of dukkha. And so, for for me, this is this is a very important list, and it's also it's also a very useful list in that when we're struggling in our practice, when we're struggling in our daily lives, even we can take this list and look at these seven factors and see, okay, what's out of balance? What can I perhaps cultivate a little bit more of in order to get more balance of these factors? Because the balancing of these factors will support the ending of the struggle, the ending of, of the dukkha. So these, these seven factors. So the first factor, the first factor is, is to be expected, is mindfulness. So again, mindfulness is the starting point. And, um, yeah, and, and I, th- I think... I'm not positive of this, but I think mindfulness is the is the quality that appears in more of the lists than any other single quality. Very important. So mindfulness is the beginning. So we begin these these seven factors with with mindfulness. Um, we we do see, however, that mindfulness as as, as much power as it can be, as beneficial as it can be, it can also end up being a struggle. We can very easily end up really trying to be mindful, putting a lot of effort into being mindful. And mindfulness, being mindful, can become exhausting. Being mindful can... It can replace whatever dukkha we were experiencing and just create something new, a new dukkha. And so, so these, other, these other factors, these other qualities go along with mindfulness to alleviate or eliminate that in a sense. They bring balance. And the second factor, the, the second factor is... What, um, what, what the Buddha referred to and what's translated as investigation of states. I just want to briefly touch on this now and then I'm going to come back to it um, a little bit later. So investigation of states is, is a factor of inquiry. It's a factor of inquiring into, inquiring into whatever it is we're giving attention to. And inquiry here does not mean, and this is very important, inquiry or investigation um, does not mean trying to figure it out, thinking about it, reasoning it out, using logic, analysis, thinking, processing. It's rather more related to simply being in the state of, um, of curiosity or interest. Being in that state of interest or curiosity without trying to figure out anything. And so that, that state of curiosity or interest is to a large degree holding our attention to whatever it is that mindfulness is being aware of. Okay, so so the mindfulness, the mindfulness is the is the opening to and being present with, and and the 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 interest, the curiosity supports the mindfulness by it's bringing that curiosity, that interest that makes us want to stay present with the object. And so, so I'll leave it at that for now. There's more to it, which I'll, I'll come back to. So when these, are, when these two factors are present, when these two factors are present, and if we, if we look at our own experience and see 
when 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 you're you're paying attention to something being mindful of something and you're really interested in it what's the effect of that and generally the the effect of it is that you get energized right do you notice that it's like um it's like if you um you come home from from work or from school or ever, wherever you're being busy with during the day and and you're really tired and you just want to kind of veg out and space out and do something that takes no effort whatsoever and then um, somebody calls and says oh let's get together for a cup of coffee or let's go out to a movie or something and oh yeah the interest comes and there comes the energy and all of a sudden that wanting to just veg out is it's gone the energy is there so so these two factors together the the mindfulness and the the interest they bring up an energy uh, a level of energy and energy is the third of the seven factors and so so the the energy comes conditioned by these two first factors and it's not like I have to work, I have to do something to make myself energetic. I don't have to, there's no magic trick that will create the energy. It's just when these two factors are present. And, and so in the, in the meditation and in our daily lives as well, if we find that there's just, there's just no energy, no energy at all, Perhaps we can look and see, oh, where's the interest? Where's the interest? Is there interest in anything? If life is just kind of flat and boring and <laughs> vegging out, what, what is there of interest that can bring up some energy? Of course, um, we have to kind of balance that because in, in, our, in our culture, sometimes... There is no energy because we're totally burned. We've totally burned ourselves out. And in, in, in the, when, that's, when that's the case, and it requires some discriminating wisdom here, because when that's the case, the last thing we need to do is do something that's going to bring up energy. It's going to burn us out even more. So it requires some discriminating wisdom and, and finding balance. But in general the presence of these two factors brings up the energy. And then again, if we, if we look in our, in our lives, in, in situations where we've had the, the, the paying attention to something, maybe it's, um, maybe it's reading a book, and there's real interest in it. The book is really holding our attention, and there's, there's lots of energy. How, how, do we, how do we feel with that? We feel really good about it. We feel there's a there's a real there's a good feeling. It's it's generally not one of the look. I shouldn't be doing this <laughs> unless it's a really bad book. <laughs> but uh, but it it brings up energy and and there, there's um, there's there's a, a an inner an inner sense perhaps of well being an inner an inner delighting. We take delight in what we're doing. As long as it holds our interest, of course, because that interest is a condition for this. So we take delight in what we're doing. And that, that, that taking delight, again, reinforces the, the wanting to stay with it and the ability to stay with it. So, oh, I just want to keep reading this book and turn the page, and oh, what's going to happen next? Oh, whoa, turn the page. You just keep on, keep on going. There's energy there, and there's that delight. There's joy in it. There's a joy in it, even, even if, it's, if it's not the most pleasant book, not the most pleasant story, even if there's things happening that, that are... Mm, there's a, there's a kind of a, a joy that keeps us going, an inner an inner joy. So now we've got we've got mindfulness, 
we've got interest, we've got energy, we've got joy. Now this this joy, this this delight, um, it's a little bit. It can get a little bit tricky, and I'll come back to this one also. But through that through that staying through that staying with whatever it is, based on these four factors, there's a settling with it. We get more into it, more interested in it, more focused on it. There's a settling, and that settling brings a, a calming. There's a, a kind of calming that arises. And that calming, that calming has, um, has the capacity to kind of steady the attention that we're giving. So it affects the mindfulness. It affects the energy. It affects the, uh, the joy. And again, it, it just arises as a natural, there's just a natural process that's happening here. It's not that I do anything, oh, I have to do something to make myself calm. It just, it just arises because of the, the prior conditions. And that calmness, again, supports the staying present. And, and, I, and I hope we can relate to this in terms of the, the sitting practice, the qigong, all, all, all that we're doing here. So if we, take, if we take the qigong, we've got the mindfulness, so we bring attention to the body, and we feel the body. Maybe we start by standing, and we just feel the body, and then we bring some, some interest, curiosity. Ah, what happens when I move my arms? What happens when I kind of lose my place? <laughs> And, and, and I can't remember how to move my arms. What's, what's, that, what's that triggering for me? How does that feel in my body? How does it feel to be frustrated? How does it feel to, to be confused? And so I bring that interest, that curiosity, to, to the practice. And that, and that interest, that curiosity, when it's present, there's, a, there's, there's some energy. How, how is it to bring real, real curiosity to the experience of tiredness? Really take interest. Wow, I'm really interested in tiredness. The tiredness is still present, but there can be an energy. There can be an energy that allows us to actually open to the experience of tiredness. So it's not about getting rid of the tiredness, but just bringing that, bringing that interest that raises an energy. And 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 with that comes there's 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 delight in that. Wow, I can really do this. I can really experience my tiredness. And then the the doubt goes away, oh, I can't do this, why, what am I doing this for? The doubt goes, the, the confusion goes. There's the calming. And as the calming settles, and, and supported by all of these factors, as all of these factors start kind of working together, and the, the calming deepens, that, that presence, the sense of presence deepens, the the staying with, the steadiness with, the energy, all of this gives rise to the next factor, which is concentration. So with the concentration, the attention really gets focused and really gets stabilized with the object, with whatever it is, just, just right there with it. And um, sounds from around, sure, they come and go, no disturbance, just right there with it. Concentration, concentration, um, so I mentioned the, the Eightfold Path, and I mentioned the other Friday evening, I think, how, or Saturday morning, sometime, I mentioned how, how right effort is part of the Eightfold Path. And of course, mindfulness is part of the path also. 
And another aspect of the path is right concentration. And concentration, there's, there's a very commonly held association of meditation and concentration. And, and somehow for, for many of us, whether, whether we're really conscious of, or, of it or not, for many people, what's gotten kind of fixed in the mind is that to meditate means to be able to concentrate. And um, I can't tell you how many people um, will come to me on a retreat and, um, and I don't think Brad, Brad or I don't think either of us up till this point have used the word concentration on the retreat. And this is typical on retreats. I, I kind of consciously don't use the word concentration. And I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, I can't concentrate. My concentration is terrible. And I'll just say, well, who told you to concentrate? Well, that's what meditation is. And, and so we, 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 we come on retreat and we're struggling. We're making tremendous effort to try and concentrate. We're trying to force concentration. And, um, and we can do it too. We can put all that effort into just hold the attention on just the breathing. One breath, two breaths, three breaths, four breaths. We can get very concentrated. But it's not right concentration. <laughs> it's concentration, but it's not right concentration. So what, what is right concentration? When I, when, I, when, I, um, when I was practicing, doing concentration practice, I think the very first piece of instruction I was given was the best way to get concentration is by not trying to get concentration. <laughs> and and it's, it's a wonder, wonderful instruction. So if we look at the seven factors, we see how concentration becomes a natural arising conditioned by these previous factors. And the two factors immediately before it are calmness and joy or delight. And so right concentration has a quality not of tightening. I've got to do it, I'm going to do it, I've done it, i got it, i got it, i got it. It's not one of tightening, but right concentration is, is, has, has a, a quality of spaciousness and lightness and ease and, and joy because it's arisen naturally without trying to make it happen. So, so right concentration doesn't confine us. Right concentration allows us and supports us in staying present with whatever shows whatever is present. It's not about, concentration isn't about getting into a a particular state. (coughs) Sometimes with concentration, certain states do arise, and these states do have great value. But it's not about getting these states. If they arise, wonderful but it's not about getting these states. It's about being able to stay present, to stay present in a mindful, focused way, with spaciousness, with lightness. So this is, this is the concentration that we want. We want concentration that just naturally kind of drops in, not concentration that I've got by forcing myself to stay with something, to hold on to something. Okay, so these are the, the, the first six. And then the seventh, the seventh factor, the seventh factor is equanimity. And equanimity is one, is a factor that, to a very large extent, it comes with 
this concentration, and it comes when all the other factors are present. So equanimity is a steadiness, is the steadiness of being present with. It's the steadiness of being present with without reacting to it. And just to go back to the joy and the delight, one of the great values of equanimity is that when we experience joy, when joy and delight, when this arises in the practice and in our lives in general, joy can, can quite easily increase in intensity and become exuberance. We just get so joyful and it feels so good. It just, wow, wow. And it just starts overflowing. And, and, and so equanimity is the factor that keeps it in balance and allows it to settle into the calmness. Okay, so equanimity is this, is this factor. And, and, and equanimity is, is, is the factor that, in fact, brings balance to all of the, all of the factors. Okay, so we have these, these seven factors. Okay, so how do these seven factors, what's the role of these seven factors in ending dukkha? This is our, this is our quest. <laughs> Why are they so important? So I'll come back to the investigation of states. What, what does this mean, investigation of states? It's, it's taking interest in, it's, it's an inquiry, and again, inquiry not, not through thinking. The, the, um, the Buddha, when, um, just after, after, his, after his awakening in Bodhgaya, one of his one of his very first thoughts was um, nobody could possibly understand this, and they can't uh, they, uh, it, they they couldn't understand it. They can't understand it because it's not to be known through reason. It's not to be known through thought. It can't be thought out. And yet, in the, particularly in this culture, so much of our conditioning and our training is we can figure out anything. And that's what we tend to do. We try to figure things out. We like to think that by thinking about, <laughs> we can know. And we can know in a certain way but not the knowing, not the knowing that truly liberates, that truly ends the dukkha. So this investigation of states is an investigation, it's a quiet, alert, awake, curious inquiry into the state of things. And we use a a number of different phrases to, to describe this the nature of things, how things actually are, the, uh, the true nature, the reality of things. And investigation, investigation of states, is an investigation into things. It's, this, it's the being present, the opening to, the staying steady with the experience in order that the nature its nature be revealed to us. Not that we get it, but that it's revealed to us through our actual experience. And what is the nature of things? That's the question. <laughs> what, do we, what do we come to know through our, through our experience? And so, so the the importance of all these seven factors is that it's, it's the, the presence of these factors in a balanced way that support us in staying present with whatever it is we're giving attention to. 
the breathing, with the feet on the ground, with the movement of the arms, with the standing still, with whatever it is we're doing in our lives. The presence and balance of these seven factors allows us and supports us in staying present with that. And as far as I can see, the only way to truly understand something is by staying present with it. If we're struggling to get rid of it, how are we ever going to understand it? If we're reaching out trying to get this and then get this and then this, how are we going to understand any of it, truly understand it? The staying present, the staying present is what allows us, what allows the understanding to be revealed. And this this understanding, this understanding of the nature of things is what we call insight. So when the Buddha speaks of insight, he's speaking of insight or understanding of the nature of things. I, um, some time ago, I, I collected a whole bunch of dictionaries and I looked up the word insight just to see what the, see what the dictionaries have to say about insight. And I was, I was very surprised, I was rather surprised what, what, what came out. Um, so when we think of insight, I mean, we use the word insight in all kinds of different ways, in different contexts. There's just so many ways. Um, but what the dictionaries commonly say is, insight is an intuitive knowing of the inner nature of things without thought. I thought, whoa, that's exactly what the Buddha meant by insight. That's exactly what the insight meditation practice is. It's cultivating these conditions that allow us to be present with something so that there's an intuitive, it's an inner knowing. It's an inner knowing of the inner nature of things without thinking. It doesn't come from figuring it out, from thinking about it. It comes directly out of the experience. And the Buddha, in terms of what is the nature of things, the Buddha identified three characteristics that are common to all things. All tangible things and all intangible things like thoughts. <laughs> and he called these, these, three, these three characteristics, these three qualities of things, he referred to them as the gateways to liberation. The ending for the Buddha, the ending of Dukkha came through these insights, the insights into these three characteristics. And any one of them becomes a very powerful gateway, a liberating gateway. So we go back to the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is, is the fact of Dukkha. And, and in fact, I think that by, by, by stating it, I mean, it's an obvious fact. It's obvious. I don't know if there's anyone here who would disagree with the statement that we experience dukkha. Um, if there is, please come and tell me how you do it. <laughs> um, so the first statement, as I see it, it's actually the Buddha inviting us to really open to dukkha and really acknowledge this is dukkha. There is dukkha. To really acknowledge the presence of it. And we acknowledge it by staying present with it and really opening to the experience of dukkha. This is how we get to understand it. And what we come to understand is the second noble truth, which is the cause, the cause of dukkha. 
And as um, as I I feel, the, the Buddha so so skillfully um, came to understand and and point out the cause of dukkha is to put it in the Buddha's words, is craving and clinging. The cause of dukkha is craving and clinging. And basically, the craving, the craving which which is dukkha, is wanting something to be different than it is. Wanting something to be different than it is. Not liking how things are. And so wanting it to be different. The Buddha gave a whole list of um, a list of of conditions that are dukkha, of situations that are dukkha, and um, two of them, two of them, um, one is one is not getting what I want, not getting what I want. So I want something really badly, like concentration, and I'm not getting it. And so I work harder, and I get more frustrated. This is dukkha. <clears throat> Not getting what I want, and, and obsessing on it. And second one is getting what I don't want. <laughs> All these terrible aches and pains that are coming to me that are continuous. I don't like it, I don't like it, I can't stand it. This is the dukkha. The dukkha isn't the pain. It's not the the sensation, the bodily sensation. It's the struggle with it, the resistance to it, the trying to get rid of it. This is the dukkha. This is the craving, craving to be different. And... And so the, the third noble truth, the ending of dukkha, obviously is the ending of the cause. The cause ends, the dukkha ends. So it's the ending of this craving and clinging. And so these, these three characteristics, these three characteristics, the first is impermanence. And as we stay present with, with something, the longer we stay present with it, the more we will see that it changes. And when these seven factors are all present and, and, they're, and they're supporting us in, in really being present in a way that's very awake and very alive and very interested and energetic, then we start to actually feel as an experience, as a bodily experience, the change is happening. And the changes may be gross changes. You know, if you if you sit if you're sitting and you get an itch, if you can just open to that itch and not scratch it, not react to it, so the equanimity, and just allow it to be present and stay with it, I guarantee, I guarantee in a relatively short time, the itch will pass. And I'm sure some, many of you have experienced this. So there's, that's kind of at a, a more gross level. But the more we stay present and, and, and with, supported by all these, all these factors, we start to see the more subtle changes that happen. And when the mind is very quiet and there's not a lot of thinking about, trying to figure out, struggling with, resisting with, stories about it, memories of it in the past, projecting it into the future, when none of that is present, we start to see that in fact that bodily sensation that we're labeling as pain is actually changing from moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. And the, this insight, this experiential, intuitive knowing of the impermanence shows us, not by figuring it out, but it tells us that we can't hold on to anything. 
and we don't have the control to make it go away. And in that knowing, oh, I can't hold on to it. It's absolutely impossible. And the more I try to hold on to it, the more dukkha it causes. And I can't push it away. And the more I try, the more dukkha it is. Oh, what a relief. I don't have to struggle with it anymore. And there's that release. And I'm willing to bet that all of us have experienced that at some time in our life, where there's something we've been struggling with, something that's been bothering us, and somehow there's been able to be uh, just dropping it. Just set it aside. And it's, ah, of course. The opening to the dukkha opening to the experience and and intuitively, experientially knowing that impermanence is the gateway for that releasing. And it's dependent on that ability to just stay present, supported by these factors. The second, the second gateway that the Buddha that the Buddha um, identified uh, is labeled as dukkha. Actually, it's the dukkha of things. The dukkha of things. And, and here, dukkha, in this context, um, the way that I understand it, dukkha here doesn't mean the suffering of things. What it means is that, and it's, and it's largely based on the impermanence, it, it means that, and the way that I understand it, is that we can't rely on things for peace and happiness and joy and calmness. Some things bring us that. Some things, you know, some things do bring us some joy, some happiness, some peace, but it tends to be quite temporary until the thing wears out or breaks down or something else becomes more appealing and more attractive. We want something new and we're, we're conditioned to keep wanting something new. It's not, just, it's not just in this culture, it's not just us. Even at the time of the Buddha, the, the, Buddha, the Buddha spoke of, the, uh, of the, this tendency to seek pleasure and to seek happiness the phrase he uses, now here, now there. And I can just see I can just see the mind going, now here, now there, now here, now there. Just reaching out for anything and everything that will bring us pleasure. Addiction to pleasure. And we need to keep getting more and more things. And at some point we see it doesn't work like that. It's temporary. And to, and to recognize this, that we can't depend on things for any lasting happiness, for any lasting peace. To come to truly know that through actual direct experience. Again, it's, ha. Ah, okay, good. Don't have to do all that now hearing and now thereing. I can rest. So again, there's that, there's the releasing and the ending of the dukkha. And the third, the third characteristic, the Pali word is anatta, which translates literally as without selfness. And what it means is that things don't exist separate from other things. All things that come into existence are conditioned by and dependent on other things. So nothing exists independently. Nothing exists independently. And then I look at myself and I say, well, here I am, and you're all out there. Nothing exists independently. Why, why am I here and you're all out there? Well, I'm here because you're all out there. And, I don't know, maybe some of you are here because I'm here. 
Maybe some of you are just here because Gaia House is here. So without Gaia House, probably none of us would be here. It'd just be an empty field, wouldn't it? So, so we're, we're here because of certain conditions. So we're not separate from those conditions. We don't exist independent of those conditions. And so much of our lives, so much of our, our actions, our thoughts, our speech, the motivation behind it, the underlying motivation behind it is to reinforce or to protect this perception of me here and the world out there. So if there's something in the world out there that I don't like, I try to keep it away. If there's something I like, I try to get it. But in fact, everything is right here, right now. It's all interconnected. So anatta is about interconnectedness. It's about non-separateness. And to realize, to truly realize this, and I'm going to come back and speak more about this before the retreat's over, but to truly realize this releases us from any sense of needing or wanting to protect, to keep separate, to keep at arm's length. to get, to control, to hold on to. And, 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 and in this, again, there's the releasing. To know that we're truly interconnected is a releasing and an ending of the dukkha, an ending of, of the struggle to protect this me and to, to reinforce and to solidify this me. So these are the three gateways to liberation. And the, the realization of these three gateways, the realization comes through this process of being present with, of opening to, of allowing for, with curiosity, with energy, with joy, with calmness, with concentration, right concentration, and with equanimity. So these seven factors become the factors that allow us to open ourselves to the revelation that frees. So enough enough for tonight. Come back to this again at some point. So let's sit quietly together. Sit quietly together knowing our togetherness. And in knowing our togetherness, knowing our support for each other how we are truly supports for each other. Knowing our togetherness, knowing that our practice is not just for ourselves. Our practice is for the well-being and the benefit of all, because we're interconnected.
May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be free from craving and clinging. May all beings know liberation of mind and heart. So if we could have the bell, please, at um, seven minutes to nine. Is the bell ringer here? Yes? Okay. We could have the bell at seven minutes to nine, and we'll come together at nine o'clock for the final sitting together this evening.